Let's study our Bibles. We are going to be in Psalm 84 this morning. Psalm 84. We're going to look at a couple different texts, but this is going to be uh, where we start. Um, you know, we this was our 10th year um, at family camp uh, as a family, and I was standing in line one night, um, and, and the Yakos were in front of us, and little Taylor Yako uh, was standing there, and I said to Julie, when we first came to Village Creek, that's how big Annie was, and it was just heartbreaking. <laughs> I started crying right there on the food line, um, but it was, it was um, just strange to think that the first time we ever went to camp, Matthew was eight months old. That's how long we've been there, and, and Village Creek has become a real special place uh, for our family. My daughter loves it there, and when I say love, I'm using an understatement. Um, she was so sad when we left, and Matthew was so sad when we left. Um, Jacob's moving toward college, so he was like, yeah, it's cool, but, you know. Um, but it's become a place that is very familiar to us. I was thinking as I was driving home, I've spent two months of days of my life uh, at that valley. And when you spend that much time in a place, um, it becomes familiar to you and it starts to become something that you think about and something that you enjoy. Where we spend our time in life reveals our priorities and it reveals our desires and it reveals what's important to us and what we value. And that not only impacts our heart, it not only affects how we feel and, and what we love, but it also impacts the lives of people around us. It's a joy to see people come to camp at, for the first time and to experience it and say, well, this is really cool. We get to be together every day, and I'm getting to know people better. I got to know some people a lot better this year that I hadn't known as well. Um, and it's just a joy to be able to experience that time together. How we live, how we spend our time, significantly impacts our life, and it significantly impacts the people around us. So you've got 168 hours this week. The week has started. We're a couple hours into it. How are you going to spend your time this week? Where are you going to dwell? What's going to be the priority in terms of your physical uh, strength, in terms of your emotional strength, in terms of your relational strength, and especially in terms of your spiritual strength? How will you use this week when we gather together next Sunday and we have the kids' musical and we've got the picnic? And you look back on this week of August 16th to August 23. How will you look back and say, I spent my week? I spent my time. Did I redeem the time? Did I use the time well? And what did my use of time reveal about my priorities? See, what we value changes as we mature. When you think about back to your 16, which I know for some of us is a very, very long time ago, what we prioritized at 16, what was important to us, the things that we thought about when we got up in the morning were one thing. And then we got to 22, which is the age where you know everything. From 22, you go downhill. Because at 22, you know everything. How many say amen to that? And you get this sense like I've got life by the string and I know exactly what I'm doing. And then you get married and everything changes. Or then you have kids and your priorities all of a sudden go from the values that you had at 16 or the values you had at 22 to now different priorities. And changing a diaper or holding a child that's sleeping or getting down on the floor on your knees and playing blocks suddenly becomes far more important than the things that you thought were great during college. 
Then as you get older and as you start to mature and your family develops and you have a job and you value that and, and you get more mature in your faith, your values change again. Then grandkids come along. I've heard that's awesome. How many know that grandkids apparently are awesome? My kids are way too young, so I don't even want to talk about Annie getting married. Just, just stay away from that. She can't date till she's 50. That's my rule now. Yes, thank you, Jim. I appreciate that. But then I hear grandkids are great, especially because you get to give them back at night. But the different values, the different things that shape us now become where we spend our time and where we spend our priorities. Life just can't be temporary fulfillment. That's what we think when we're young. The next thing, the next thing we're going to do, the next place we're going to go, the next person we're going to be with, that's, that's all temporary fulfillment. But there comes a point where you say, what is the ultimate measure of my soul? What's the ultimate importance to me? And David answers that question, I believe, in Psalm 84, a familiar passage probably to us, but I want to uh, read through all of it. We're really just going to concentrate on verses 1 to 5 this morning, but let's read through this because this is a great text of Scripture. And actually, forgive me, it's not David, it's the sons of Korah. I misspoke there. So the sons of Korah, who were songwriters, wrote this. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house and a swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. They're ever praising you. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you in whose heart are the highways to Zion or Jerusalem. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand in the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. What a great verse that is. O Lord of hosts, how blesses the man who trusts in you. Now David, uh, excuse me, the sons of Korah, when you look at verses 1 through 4, you see this theme of dwelling in God's presence. And the implication from the first two verses is that they're referring to all the places near the temple, all the places where worship took place in Jerusalem, where God's presence was known to dwell. So in the temple, there was the Holy of Holies. That's the place where the presence of God resided. And then outside the Holy of Holies was the holy place, and there was an altar of incense, and there was an altar of burnt offering. And each of those places were considered to be the dwelling place of God. Jerusalem itself was known as the city of God. So anytime, and he references Zion twice, anytime you talk about Jerusalem uh, in, in terms of the Jewish culture, it was where God resided. That's why the battle today is so heavy over Jerusalem. When you look at a map, it is hard to even find Israel on a map. I think it's the size of Rhode Island, if I remember that right, or the size of New Jersey. It's a tiny little country. And yet everything in the world this morning really comes back to Jerusalem. 
our foreign policy toward Israel, what's happening with ISIS, what's happening with Al-Qaeda, what's happening with Israel, and the Iran nuclear agreement. Everything centers on Jerusalem. Now, why is that? Why do the Palestinians want so badly to have Jerusalem taken from the Jews and given to them? It's because of this. Jerusalem is where the presence of God is in terms of the Jews. And especially in the Old Testament, Jerusalem, the temple, the holy place, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, they were where the presence of God was. Further back in the Old Testament, you had the tabernacle when they come out of Egypt and they build the tent of meeting in the wilderness and the presence of God would come down and fill that place. There were times where they knew that God was among them. So that's the reference in verses 1 to 4, but there's a secondary meaning. Because the songwriter says, I also long for that time where I'm just in the presence of the Lord between me and him. See, God has his church, and we call this the house of the Lord. But this is not the only place where we can experience the presence of God. It's not just Sunday morning at 9.30. We all gather at Harbor Rock. We come in, and oh, we get to be in the presence of God here. And then we get back in our cars, and we go home, or we go to lunch, and the presence of God is a void in our life until we come back next Sunday at 9.30. That's not how it works. The presence of God is always with us. That's why, as we talked about at camp, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is God within us. And the writer of the psalm here says, that's the valuable time. That's the time where I get to be in the presence of God. The time that I prioritize each day to be an intimate relationship with the Lord. This is what sustains me. This is what fulfills me. This is what gives power into my life. So look back at the verse for a second. How lovely are your dwelling places, referring to those places in Jerusalem. My soul long and yearns for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They're ever praising you. Then he gets to the next verse. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you. See, what we know as believers is the grace of God and the mercy of God and the goodness of God, and the faithfulness of God, and the indwelling of God, and the power of God, all these benefits that God has given to us. Now he says in verse 2, my soul longs and yearns for you. And as I studied that passage and I thought about that, I asked myself, does that really describe me? Every morning when I wake up is my longing and yearning for the Lord. Every day when I go through my day and I do my job and I minister to people and I spend time with my family, is my yearning ultimately for the Lord? Do I just desire to reside in His presence? Are there things that I'm doing that I have to do as part of my life that are actually distractions from my time until I can get back to be with the Lord and spend time with Him? See, he says in verse 4, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. In verse 5, how blessed is the man who strengthened you. See, the, the word dwell there means to inhabit and to remain. 
So there's the literal dwelling in the house of the Lord, which is what we're doing right now. And then there is the moment-by-moment position of the heart where we get into the presence of God and we're living for Him and we're fellowshipping with Him and we're calling on His name. And when we're driving in our car, we're praising Him and looking crazy to the driver next to us because we're lifting our hands. We actually don't lift your hands while you drive. Put them on the wheel, 10 and 2 or 9 and 3, they tell me now is the right place because of the airbag. But, but just praise the Lord with your head then. Just do this thing as you're driving. Praising the Lord constantly. Dwelling in the house of the Lord constantly in our hearts. Living in his presence. Desiring his word. We can't wait to get back to it. Is that who we are? See, the writer says that when you dwell in the house of the Lord, look back at it. He says, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. In other words, the end result of spending time in the presence of the Lord is praise. Not just 9.30 to 9.50 Sunday morning. Well, Paul, I don't really like to sing, and that's fine. Listen, it's not about performance at that point. It's about praise. It's about the praise of our heart. Does you, excuse me, do you go through the day praising the Lord? Do you go through the day saying, Lord, there, I see your work. Lord, I'm calling on your name. And you just answer prayer. I found over the last two months that God is answering prayer after prayer after prayer that I pray. And, and I don't know why I'm kind of surprised by it, but, but I just continue to see his faithfulness and his graciousness. So I've gotten to the place where I just want to pray about everything. Lord, I, I, I'm not going to give you details. Lord, I need to put that before you. Can you help me with that? The Lord answers it. Lord, can you change my attitude on this? My attitude changes. I found time after time after time that the more time I spend, look at verse 4, the more time I spend dwelling in his presence, the more I'm full of praise because God is so sufficient. But it's not just about praise. Look at verse 5. Dwelling in the presence of the Lord builds strength. It builds resolve. It builds determination. It builds joy and confidence in the Lord so that we go from strength to strength to strength. I once heard Warren Wiersbe, who was just an unbelievable teacher of the Bible, I once heard him say in a message, you get your strength from where your heart is. And he was exactly right. If our heart is running away from the Lord... I mean, there's any distance between us and the Lord, or even worse, if we're literally running with our spirit from him, then it is going to pull spiritual strength from us. The farther you are away from the Lord, the less strength you will have. The closer you are to the Lord, the more his power will be evident in your life. How do I know that? Because there are numerous examples throughout Scripture. Adam and Eve hid from the presence of God. Why? Because they disobeyed him. And all of a sudden, they became uh, people who went from confident, joyful, walking with the Lord every day, unashamed, unaware of their of, of sin, pure, holy, happy. Now they go to hiding in the bushes, covering themselves with leaves, hiding from the presence of God because they had disobeyed his word. And because of that, their lives became full of sorrow and heartache because of their sin. 
Then you've got the Israelites wandering through the wilderness and whining and wanting to go back to Egypt because their hearts were not right. They were walking with the Lord and the presence of God was right there with the cloud every day. But their hearts were so far from God and so distant from God that even as Moses is getting the law on the mountain and they're seeing the, the, the lightning and hearing the thunder and hearing the voice of God, they're taking off the rings and saying, build us a golden calf. You've got Elijah, who was a great servant of God and did incredible miracles. But as soon as he gets introspective and as soon as he starts to think about his own problems and feel sorry for himself, he gets beaten down and runs days and days into the wilderness and hides in a cave. You've got Jonah hiding on a boat, unwilling to do the will of God, unwilling to fulfill the Lord's calling. And now, because he's in sin and because he's running from God, he has zero spiritual power. It is a direct cause and effect relationship between our proximity to God and whether we're ever praising him. And if you're not ever praising him, it probably indicates that there's some distance there. Because when we're in the presence of God, when we dwell in the house of the Lord, that's when joy comes. So the question becomes, are you running or are you dwelling? Now, we can answer that by looking at the maturity of our walk and the consistency of our spiritual strength. And that's not just important for our lives, it's important for the lives of people around us. What do people learn about the sufficiency of God from us? What do people learn about the joy of the Lord being our strength from us? What do people learn about the the delight of being in the presence of God and ever praising Him? What do they learn from us? Are they encouraged and empowered and drawn in and say there's something different? Or are they kind of discouraged that if this is what it looks like to to be a believer and to know salvation and to know Christ, then, then I don't really see the need for it. See, sometimes you get around people and and they kind of drag you down and you kind of feel discouraged and there's a weakness. Do, do people see that in us? We're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We're saved by Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He rose again. He gave us victory. We talked about it all week at camp. We're overcomers. We're more than conquerors through Christ. So if that's true, is that what people see? Do they see a heart that's yearning for the Lord? A heart that's longing to be in God's presence? How do people describe you when you're not around? Especially spiritually. I want you to turn for a second over to Genesis 13 because I want to give you a principle about this that I think will be helpful, and I hope it will be. We're going to look at three different passages very quickly, just a couple minutes on each. But what do people learn? What, what do people see in us? Do they see this power and this strength and this joy and this praise out of our lives? Do they see it coming out of our time in God's presence and our constant desire to be with him? Or is there something else? See, people are watching. So we're going to look at three different passages about how people either dwelt well or dwelt poorly, and then we're going to apply it to ourselves. Let's start in Genesis 13 with Abraham. Now, Abraham, when we think about Abraham, Maybe you have some different thoughts, maybe different ideas. If I just say the word Abraham, you may think of Abraham and Sarah. You may think of Abraham being the father of Israel. 
You may think of uh, Abraham and Ishmael, or you may think of Abraham and Isaac as he took him up onto Mount Moriah and God said, sacrifice your son, and Abraham was faithful until the Lord provided. I don't know what your image is when I say the word Abraham, but one word that describes Abraham well is the word altars. Altars. Abraham is constantly building altars, and I'll explain what that means in a minute. But he honored the Lord, and he dwelt in praise. God, in chapter 12, takes Abraham, and he says, it's time for you to to take a different course in your life. I'm going to pull you out of where you live. I'm going to move you from Haran to Bethel, and I'm going to move you through Canaan. And this is going to be a new experience for you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to establish my promise to you that I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Abraham's just kind of minding his own business, and God shows up. So Abraham takes this huge uh, 400, 500-mile journey from where he lived in Haran all the way down into Canaan. And when he gets there, he builds an altar. This is in chapter 12. He builds an altar and worships God. In chapter 22 which we'll not look at, but you know. When God calls him to sacrifice Isaac as a test of his faith, he goes to Mount Moriah without delay, and he builds an altar. And here in chapter 13 and verse 14, Abraham shows the value that he has of being in the presence of the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, Eastern and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abraham moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which is in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Earlier, Abraham and his nephew, who was greedy and self-centered, Abraham said, here's all the land before us. You pick one side, I'll pick the other, and you can take it. Lot pitches his tents, the text says, towards Sodom. He looks towards Sodom and Gomorrah. His desire of his heart was not for the Lord. It wasn't to dwell in the presence of the Lord. He wanted what he wanted. So Lot moves closer and closer to Sodom until one day, very quickly, he's sitting in the gate of Sodom as the official greeter. He's the one who welcomes everybody to town. He becomes the face of the city because his desire was for the world and not for God. Abram, who graciously gave this offer to Sodom, he now pitches his tents the other way, away from Sodom. And it says that he comes down to Hebron and he builds an altar to the Lord. Now, why would he do that? Out in the middle of the wilderness, why is the first thing that Abram does to build an altar? And to, and to take stones and put them together and lay an ox on top of it and, and offer a sacrifice to God. Why is that the first thing that he does? Well, he's making a statement. The altar is the place of priority. It is the place, listen now, this is very important. The altar is where we prioritize sacrificing ourselves to the Lord. Romans 12.2 says that you are a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So when we come into the presence of the Lord, when we prioritize our time with the Lord, we are making a priority of sacrificing ourselves to Christ and prioritizing time in his presence. 
right now I've started to take the elders and deacons through a course called DNA. We're eventually going to take all of you through it. And the core value of DNA, which is getting back to what God has called us to do, is that we have to build altars in our life. That in our families, in our marriages, in our work, in our ministry, that there has to be a priority of God being first. We talked about it again at camp all week, about being in the presence of the Lord and worshiping Him and taking time to praise Him and study His Word. All the things that we know as Christians, all things we've heard since we were kids. Well, you need to study your Bible and you need to pray and you need to go to church and praise Him and then you need to find a place of service. That's the altar. But is that a side thing? Is that something we just give an hour and a half to each week and then we're kind of done and we've got 165 hours left or 166 hours left that we've got to do our stuff? Or is this prioritization of our life? See, when you build altars, it strips you of self-focus and it strips you of self-sufficiency and it breaks down distrust And it breaks down any hardness in our heart. And it breaks down powerlessness. And it breaks down any desire to run away from the presence of the Lord. So look back at verse 4. He built the altar. And then he called on the name of the Lord. See, Abraham understood the concept of walking by faith. And he couldn't rely on his own strength to please the Lord. And he couldn't rely on his own strength to get through life. Quickly, Abram understood that to walk through life and to have power and to have the presence of God, we have to surrender ourselves and sacrifice ourselves to him. So he leaves his family. He goes to an unknown destination. He trusts God for something that seems absolutely impossible. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. If you look at the sand in the desert, that's how many descendants you're going to have. He has to overcome the skepticism and cynicism of his wife who didn't trust the Lord and who laughed at the word of the angel who said, you're going to have a son. And she's thinking, I'm 90 years old. How am I going to have a kid? And then he has to give his later years of his life to raising a baby and guiding and directing him. And then he has to build another altar when God says to him one day, take that baby that I promised you that is such a miracle and go up to the mountain and sacrifice him. And Abraham doesn't say, wait a second now. Come on. You you told me this is the son of the promise. He goes immediately and he builds an altar and prepares to sacrifice to the Lord. This is the dedication of faith. And when fear rises up and things don't seem to make sense and we get insecure and we get anxious and it seems to be a challenge to obey rather than to do our own thing, that's where the altar becomes important because the more time we spend in the presence of the Lord, the more security we have in Him, the more confidence we have in His provision, and the more we praise Him. Now contrast that to Numbers chapter 16. Go over a couple books real quick and let's see how the Israelites did it. We already know where this is going, right? Numbers chapter 16. Abraham built altars. He spent time in the presence of the Lord. He was willing to obey. He was trusting in what God was going to do. Then you go to the Israelites. He's the father of this nation. They should have looked at his example. They should have learned from him. They should have understood that God will be faithful. 
But it says in verse 41, on the next day, the congregation, the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They said, you're the one who caused the death of the Lord's people. Came about, however, when the congregation had assembled before Moses and Aaron, that they had turned the tent of meat, turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it. Here comes the presence of God, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Then they fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put it in fire from the altar and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly. For behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He took a stand between the dead and the living, so the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700 beside those who died in the account of Korah earlier in the chapter. Then Abraham returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of the meeting, for the plagues had been checked. Now, that's kind of a graphic, strange passage on a hot August morning. But here's the difference between Abraham... And Israel. All Abraham had was the word of the Lord. Abraham, get up, leave your house, go 400 miles to the west, and there I'm going to make a great nation out of you even though you're old. All he had was God's word. Israel has the miracle of getting out of Egypt, the miracle of the Red Sea, the miracle of the manna, the miracle of the water from the rock, the miracle of the quail flying through, the miracle of God's presence in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the miracle of the promised land, the miracle of the law. They've got everything. And they grumble against Moses and Aaron and say, you guys are the ones that brought us out here and made us die. And God finally has enough and says, hey, you guys, get out of the way. I'm about to deal with this faithless people. See, where Abraham built altars and left altars behind everywhere he went, Israel left cemeteries. They left cemeteries. Everywhere they went, they built and filled cemeteries. Abraham goes and he worships the Lord and he built an altar and he praises God and he sacrifices to the Lord and he trusts the word of the Lord. But Israel didn't want to do that. Israel was completely about themselves. So everywhere they go, people are dying. Everywhere they go, God's disciplining. Everywhere they go, God is having to to deal with their ingratitude and their grumbling and their self-sufficiency and the mess that is their lives till finally God says, I've had enough. And in one day, 14,000 people are struck with a plague. Imagine if Moses hadn't had the presence of mind to say to Aaron, get out in the middle of the people and make a sacrifice. See, Moses is building an altar right in the middle of God's discipline. And you get the sense in the text that God spared them a little bit because Moses took that step. Imagine if he hadn't made atonement for the people. Imagine our lives if Christ hadn't made atonement for us. Imagine if God had just let us be like Israel, let us be self-sufficient, let us be stubborn, not have given us an opportunity to be forgiven. Now, some people look at that and say, well, God's really harsh. 
Why didn't he give Israel a chance? You know, I thought God was a loving God. I thought God was gracious. Why did, why did he do this? They had every opportunity, every opportunity to see the grace of God realized in their life, to see the promises of God fulfilled in their life. And they had far more evidence than Abraham ever had, but they did not want to build altars. You'd never see the people of Israel wandering through the wilderness saying, we need to build an altar to the Lord. We need to make a sacrifice to the Lord. So what happens? Look at the text. They're completely lacking in God's presence and they're completely lacking in strength. You would think they would have gotten the message. You would think as they're standing there grumbling and they look at the tent of meeting and the manifest presence of God comes down and fills the place. You would have think they would have done what Moses and Aaron would have done. They would have fallen on their faces and said, Lord, we repent. We have been wrong. Our heart has been wrong. Instead, they stand there defiantly looking at them saying, you guys are the problem. You guys are why we're struggling. You guys are why people are dying. When they need to be saying, we are why people are dying. So God disciplines them. Now before we get too critical of them, let's think about all the times when we don't build altars. All the times when we don't take the step. Because this passage right here, Numbers chapter 16, is a warning to us. It's a warning what happens when we don't prioritize the presence of God in our life. How often do we lose our passion for the Lord because our hearts get cold and rebellious and we embrace sin? How often does our joy disappear because we don't want to take a step out in faith, a step out of the boat and trust the Lord for what we can't see and call on him and say, Lord, you promised to be my strength and my shield and my sufficiency so I don't understand what's going to happen, but I am going to trust in you. How often do, do we refuse to do that and lose our confidence? How often do we stop running the race before the finish line and we get weary and we get tired and, and we say life is unfair or I'm weary of serving or where is everybody else or what isn't anybody else? And, and we stop running the race. We stop looking to the author and finisher of our faith and we start to look at ourselves and you say, you know what, I can't do it anymore. How often do we stop spending time in the presence of the Lord? God's saying to us, don't be like them. Don't, don't do that. I was dwelling there right there in the middle of their camp in the tabernacle, and they still defiantly stood against me. And then you come back to the passage that says, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is where the Spirit of God now dwells, in us. Do we represent him well? Are we abiding in him? See, one of the best ways to get our minds off ourselves, and to spend time honoring the Lord is to serve. Serving Him. How are you going to serve the Lord this week? What's going to be your sacrifice of time for the Lord this week? I'm not saying this is a plug for what I did earlier. We do need people to serve. I'm not manipulating at this point. Please hear me on that. But one of the best ways that we can keep the altars before the Lord and one of the best ways that we can honor the Lord is to take the time and the sacrifice to serve. I heard someone say, I don't remember who it was, uh, last week at camp, you give time to what you care about. 
So do we see altars? Do we see time as presence of the Lord? Do we see serving as, as obligatory? I'll get my 15 minutes of, of, of my daily bread done today, and that'll be it. And I'll pray a couple of times when I wake up, when I go to bed, and, and, I'll, and I'll go to church. And I'll, I don't know. Paul, why are you picking on me this morning? I'm not picking on you this morning. I'm talking about what brings life. I'm talking about what brings joy. I'm talking about ever praising the Lord. The Lord is so good. How many know the Lord's so good this morning? He's so good to us. What has Christ done for us? He has redeemed us out of the miry clay. We've been pulled out of the pit of death and hell and condemnation forever because Christ loved us and he gave himself for us. And now he says, I gave myself for you. Now you give yourself from me. How do we do that? What's our week going to look like where we can look at that and say, yes, Lord, this is where I'm going to spend time with you. Yes, Lord, this is where I'm going to build an altar. Yes, Lord, this is where I'm going to serve you. And I'm not going to do it begrudgingly. I'm not going to say, I can't believe I'm going to do that. I'm going to say, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And I get to serve my Savior this week. It's all about how we think about it, and it's all about what we leave behind. Abram left altars. The Israelites left cemeteries. Look at one more passage real quick in Matthew chapter 9. I know it's warm, and you're listening so well, but look real quick at Matthew chapter 9 because Jesus left something behind too. Abraham builds altars. Israel builds cemeteries. Jesus left behind changed lives. Change lives. Those who saw him, those who heard him, those who trust in him, they're a picture of his sacrifice and his mercy and his healing. He dwelt in the presence of the Father. Philippians says he was willing to become a bondservant on our behalf. He was willing to be sacrificed on the altar of the cross. He was always showing the priority of complete surrender. And because he did that, it changed our lives for all eternity. Look how it's described in verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. This passage is used all the time as a rationale and a calling to evangelism. And it should be. But I want you to see what the prerequisite is for evangelism. We can do evangelism courses. We can say we've got to reach the lost, talk to your neighbor, talk to the person at work. You need to share the gospel with people. This needs to be something to do. We're going to train you to do this. We can do that all day long. But if the prerequisite for evangelism is not met, that's going to fall on deaf ears. So look back at the text. What was the prerequisite? What was the reason why Jesus did what he did? It's right there in verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. See, evangelism will never take place until we have a heart of love for people that don't know Christ. That's what motivated Jesus to go to the cross. 
He goes through towns and villages, and he's healing people, and he's proclaiming the gospel. But notice that what drove him to do all this is that he felt compassion to them because when he looked at them, they were discouraged and dispirited, and they're kind of wandering around like lost little sheep that don't have a shepherd, and they don't know what to do. And he's not talking physically here. He's talking spiritually. They had no clue. People that are not believers... I'm not, I'm not being pejorative here. They don't know what they're missing. They don't know truth. They, they can't understand it. They don't realize that Christ's sacrifice is enough. They don't realize that they can be forgiven of their sin, that they can have new life, that joy can fill their heart every moment of the day. They just don't get it, which is why it's our job not to be critical, not to be judgmental, not to be condemning but to be compassionate. When you see a person that doesn't know the Lord, when you talk to a person that's stubborn and argues with you and curses you because you love Jesus Christ, instead of being angry and judgmental and thinking, well, you've got a special place in hell, instead of compassion for them because they don't know the truth. At one point, I didn't know the truth. At one point, you didn't know the truth. And then God broke through. And all of a sudden, Christ became real, and your heart was awakened, and you trusted Christ, and everything changed. Jesus had compassion for the people. So what does he leave behind? He leaves behind changed lives. It is our responsibility. Let's bring it to a close. It's our responsibility and our joyful calling to build altars, to spend time in the presence of the Lord, to rejoice in his salvation, to praise him for what he's done, to serve him, not to do what Israel did, not to, not to complain and be discouraged and, and to have cemeteries following us, but to build altars. Because when we do that, the salvation of Jesus Christ changes lives through us. What's your week going to look like? Are you going to get to the end of the week and say, Paul, this is great. I spent time praising the Lord. I, I, I sacrificed the time on the Internet. I sacrificed the time on TV. I sacrificed maybe a little bit of exercise or a meal. I, I didn't eat lunch because I wanted to be with the Lord. I wanted to spend time in his presence. I, I put off maybe a little bit of yard work or a house repair because I, I needed to be with the Lord. I needed to spend time with the Lord. And, and when I did that, when I built that altar, I just started to praise him. Try it. Try it this week. Pick some times where you normally would do something that you're going to do for yourself and say, you know what? I'm going to sacrifice that time for the Lord. I'm going to build an altar right here. I'm, I'm going to give that time to him. Because the enemy is just going to keep throwing stuff at us. It's about to get real busy. Another week, back to the routine. Kids are in school. So much work to be done. Fall ministry to be executed. Christmas is five months away. And it'll be here like that. How are we going to prioritize our time? How are we going to prioritize being in the presence of the Lord? It starts with saying, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. It's so good to be in your presence. I see to spend time with you.